My view of rights is they are inalienable. The government does not give you rights. It's on the government not to impinge on your rights. Hello there from El Salvador, the Bitcoin capital of Central America. How are you all doing? Yes, I am back in El Salvador. I think this is my fifth or sixth visit. It's so good to be back. I'm out here making a film, but I'm also stuffing my face with pupusas and catching up with everyone out here in El Zonte. It's great to be back. I do love it out here. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got an interview with my friend Stefan Levera discussing libertarianism. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors, and today we kick off with a very new sponsor. It is the awesome Compass Mining, and if you've been following my Twitter, you will be aware that I am back mining, which is very, very cool. They are not just a sponsor. I am actually a customer. I bought some miners off them with my own money. They weren't a gift. They weren't given to me by Compass. I am a fully fledged paying customer and I have been mining with them for 14 days and I've already mined 0.048 Bitcoin, which is worth around $2,250, which is very cool. It is so good to be back mining. And you know what? I just fucking love these guys. Now, Compass makes mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. And it was so easy to get onboarded. And now anyone can mine Bitcoin with Compass. And I picked my machines. I've chosen my hosting facility and they're out there. They're hashing away. And it was pretty cool working with them because they did all the hard work for me. They did all the heavy lifting. Now, if you're interested in getting into mining, you want to find out more, then please do reach out to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S. M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. And next up, we have BlockFi, who recently announced the launch of the BlockFi Rewards Visa Signature Card. Now, for people living out in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, the BlockFi Rewards Credit Card provides the easiest way for you to earn more Bitcoin because you can get an amazing 1.5% back in Bitcoin on all card purchases. And you know what? There is no annual fee. It is the smartest way to sack sats with Bitcoin rewards on every purchase. Now, not just that 1.5% back, but you can get 3.5% back in Bitcoin during your first three months of card ownership, and you can get 2% back in Bitcoin on every purchase of over 50000 of annual spend. If you're interested in finding out more, then please head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Also, let's talk about Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin, and I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, and I'm still using the same Nano S I bought back then. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Life software, which interfaces with your device. And if you're one of those freaks out there using an Android phone, then you can manage your Bitcoin on the go because it connects to your Nano S. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. And also we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I still haven't sold a single sat through Gemini because we are in a bull market and I only want to stack sats. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com. Okay, onto the show. And today I've got my good friend Stefan Levera back on from the Stefan Levera Show, another podcast, another amazing podcast, one of the ones I listen to when I want to learn about Bitcoin. 
And you know what? We do this every now and again. Me and Stefan get together and we talk about libertarianism because he is a libertarian and I'm a statist and it's a good way for us to go through some of the ideas. I always learn a bunch of Stefan. Now, like I say, he's been on the show a few times before and they've always been remote interviews, but we were both in Dallas at the same time. So we finally got the chance to sit down in person and fight about the role of the state. Now, I get called a statist all the time and there are definitely some things I think we need the state for. But I also think that the state is pretty shit at a lot of things it does, and I do agree with most libertarian viewpoints, but I've always struggled to see how we would have an operational society without a state. And I know, and there's plenty of good arguments against it, but it's just how I feel. Now, Stefan is a pretty hardcore libertarian, and he is amazing at breaking down concepts, and he did a great job of running me through some of the questions on how a libertarian society would operate now, I put some pretty tough questions to him, and they were all pretty sound answers. There were some areas where I, yeah, I didn't, I don't think he gave me the most solid answer, but he accepted that. You know, he talked about that. And also, you know what? Just a big shout out to Stefan. I'm always pinging him on like Signal and saying, look, I don't understand this. And he sends me articles to read, and he's super patient, much better than some of the morons on Twitter who just shout at you if you are slightly in support of the state. Now, I think you'll really enjoy this one, but as ever. If you want to reach out to me, my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com or you can jump into my Telegram group. Okay, over to Stefan. I hope you enjoy this one. Hey, yes. man. <laughs> we haven't done this in person. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, but we've only ever done them over remote interviews, haven't we? So. Uh... Yeah, I think so. Mm. Right, we've got loads to talk about because mm. I'm the statist, you're the libertarian. That's right. And there's things we don't agree on and there's things we do agree on. Right. And... And there's things you need to be crucified for. <laughs> things I need to be crucified for. And there's, uh, yeah, no, you're right. And then there's things that you need to wake up to the real world for. <laughs> all right, all yeah. Right, all right. All right. So, but we're definitely in a period of you being, I told you so, rightly so, in certain things. So I think there's a lot to talk about. Um, I, I think a good starting point is you've been on my show three or four times and we've talked about libertarianism, but obviously all of our shows have grown a lot over the last year, lots of new people coming in. So I think we need to retouch some of those subjects because people wouldn't have uh, heard this yeah, before. Sure. And then we need to talk about Australia. <laughs> yeah, for we sure. We need to talk about generally what's going on with the mm. uh, reactions to COVID, the impact on money, mm. you, you escaping, your new job. There's shitloads to talk about. Yeah, lots of things. So let's start, let's just start with libertarianism. Just for anyone who's listening, they're like, well, what is this libertarianism stuff? I've not heard about it. Because I mm. hadn't heard about it until I mm. discovered Bitcoin. Just explain to them what a libertarian is, what it means to you. And yeah, of course. So in my view, a libertarian is someone who is concerned with the rights of the individual. And it, and also the, essentially, what is the right way society politically should be structured? And what are our rights versus the state's rights? And so in my view, I essentially deny the existence of political authority. So I'm saying we should not treat the state like it is a special category. We should treat it like you or me, just like an individual would. And so as an example, if it would be wrong for me to sort of go around pointing my gun at people and saying, hey, pay up my tax, pay, you pay me some money so that I can go run uh, public services, that would be wrong for you or me to do. So it should also be wrong for the government to do that. So I'm, 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 I see it more like it's almost like the golden rule. We're applying the same consistent rule to every person, regardless of whether I have a special badge that says I'm a policeman or I'm a judge or I'm a, I'm a tax collector or I'm whatever. So I guess at a high level, that's essentially how I would explain it to somebody. And so the classical formulation that we normally talk about in libertarianism is the NAP, the non-aggression principle. Mm -hmm. So the idea is 
you should not be, you should never initiate aggression against somebody else. That violence in self-defense is permissible, uh, but you generally, you do not go and aggress, right? So I do not steal your stuff, you don't steal my stuff, you know, I don't harm your body, or I don't harm, you know, I don't harm your property. That's kind of the general idea. But then if we, maybe we'll go one step deeper there, is if we also explain this idea that it's that different isms, it's not that they don't have a theory of property rights, it's that they have a different theory, they have a different theory of property rights to what libertarians believe. So libertarians, in my view, believe in what's called homesteading. And so the idea is that property is property should only be transferred if you were the first to it or to mix your labor with it or through an agreement, right, a contract. Or I mm -hmm. sell you my land or, you know, I buy land from you uh, or, you know, you pass it on, right, like, you know, father passes on to the son or something like that. And so all so we view it like other forms of you know, government that don't respect those rules essentially are giving themselves a special right to something that they shouldn't have. And that, so that's where, so I guess summarizing that, essentially, in my view, a libertarian is somebody who believes in more of a private property society. So the idea is, you know, the, all the services would be privately provided, even the roads would be privatized. And so everything the would just roads. be- Yeah, and that's the, you know, that's where often the first thing people say, oh, that, what about the roads? We're not gonna do the roads. Yeah, and we won't get into that today. But the broader idea is all of those other things could be provided by the market. And so one way it could be explained is to think, well, if I think the government shouldn't be making cars or food, well, should, should the government be the one making the legal system as well? Or, and now, in fairness, there's different, there's different types of libertarians, right? You've got the minarchist libertarian who believes in a small state, mm -hmm. and you've got the anarcho-capitalist who believes in zero government. But to be clear, that's still, they still believe in governance. There would still be rules. It would just be determined by private property owners. And over time, there's like a market of rules and laws that form over time. And so, and so we, we think of laws and rights as natural. Some, some would say God-given, others would just say you just naturally have these rights as opposed to a kind of a statist conception, which is more like you only have the rights that the, gov that the government grants to you. Right. We, we sort of view it as logically separate or antecedent or prior to. Right. I'm writing down a lot of questions. Yeah, the so things I want to cover, <clears throat> just to be clear, is that I agree with everything you said. Like, I am, I am in some ways, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. Uh, everything you said is right. That's why I've like referred to myself recently as like a reluctant statist, because I, I'm still not 100% sure on the practicalities of what you said. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting discussions, and people will batter me for saying this, but I, I heard a very interesting debate between Brett Weinstein and Eric Weinstein, where Eric was talking about the state having a monopoly on violence is a good thing. I'm not saying I agree with him, but I think you have to have the debate to decide whether you between whether you think there should be a monopoly on violence or whether there should be you know, uh, uh, private security forces, etc. So, I refer to myself now as a reluctant status because I agree with everything you say, but I still believe in democracy as the best we have right now. Is, is that? Yeah, so I understand much? where you're coming from. Yeah. yeah. So I've got some questions because I'm writing down as you were yeah. saying this. Um, you haven't explained that thing to me before in terms of private property, in terms of the first to it, which is a really interesting kind of concept. Yeah. Do you so, not think that creates some chronological disadvantage 
to people who were born today versus people born hundreds of years ago. Interesting point, right? And so, but let's remember, we also benefit from people who came before us too, right? Mm -hmm. They accumulated capital, and that capital is what now allows us to have all of these nice things that our grandparents or great-great-grandparents could never have dreamed of. Mm -hmm. Or even a king 200 years ago doesn't enjoy the same technology and access that you and I have now. But to answer your question about property, though, it's essentially what, what I'm saying is it's more like this is the only way to have a peaceful resolution of these things. Otherwise, property rights are only in, are given in scarce things. And otherwise, you know, only one person can stand on this point at one mm -hmm. time. And so we need a way to peacefully and using reason allocate who is the rightful owner of, oh, you own that property, uh, number three, King Street, and I own number five, King Street, or whatever. Like this, that's the only way that we see it as a peaceful and prosperous, efficient society that could really work, is that you need a private property theory of rights. And so that's, I guess that's how I would answer that. Because one of the things that makes me think about is when you think of the nation state, different nations have different resources, whether it's Venezuela has its oil mm. or... African countries which have their diamonds or whatever resources they have. And I always think of the resources of the nation as something that can be you know, mined, you know, uh, recovered from the ground and be used to sell them to the market to provide things for that nation, mm -hmm. to provide something for, for the people. The first person who gets to it, essentially, or you probably argue back actually, the first person who gets to it is the state and they're all greedy. Fuckers. So anyway, <laughs> but like in, an ideal, in my ideal world, that kind of like resources of the nation is something that should be for the people of the nation, the people who are there. Um, so that's why I think that kind of like first to it, it sometimes creates a disadvantage for people later on, especially in certain societies. Where we've, we've, you, you grew up, spent a lot of time in Australia. You weren't born in Australia, right? Yeah, I was born in Sri Lanka. Right, yeah. yeah. Somewhere I need to go as well, actually. Um, but... Uh, we, we've spent most of our lives in fairly rich, prosperous nations. Yeah. You know, we've both also had the opportunity to visit other nations where people don't have the same chances. And that idea, like, first to... I, I just sometimes think that some people, it's harder for them to get onto that ladder. Now, I know I'm sounding like a socialist right now, but I, I'm trying to work through these kind of ideas. And I, and I guess where I'm going with this is is that... I, well, let me put a different question to you. Are you, on, are you a minarchist or an anarcho-capitalist? So I'm in the anarcho-capitalist camp. So right. basically, I believe that... Now, to be clear, I believe that would be the theoretical... Ideal. Ideal. Do I believe it will happen in my lifetime? Maybe not. But I believe that's the general principle. The guiding principle is your property is yours, my property is mine, and it, I, let me give you an analogy. It would be like saying we should strive for a society where there's no murder and no rape. Now, people wouldn't come back to you saying, oh, see, that's stupid. We'll never have a society with no murder and no rape. The point is, what should we be? You know, what, we should aim, we should strive to respect each other's rights and, you know, responsibilities and so on. And so that's the sense in which I'm an anarcho-capitalist. But I know, look, probably it may never happen in my lifetime. But if I can incrementally push in that direction, I'll take it, right? If it's a win, if it's, a, if, if it's an improvement, in that direction, I'll take it. Okay, so without making the six-month joke, what is the difference between a libertarian and an anarcho-capitalist? <laughs> you already knew the joke. But well, Michael Malice said it to me. Yeah, but basically, I view libertarianism as the broader category, and then there are subcategories, like right. minarchist, anarcho-capitalist, and maybe even kind of bigger government than minarchist is like kind of the classical liberals who broadly sort of fit into that category as well. 
So I just see it as like a... There are some libertarians who believe that the only way it could be done is with a small government state and that the government should do, you know, the typical, you know, national defense, maybe courts, uh, some of those things. Where they might maybe say, roads. And <laughs> well, the roads is the, is the common joke, right? But, but board, think, borders, yeah. maybe some conservation. Yeah, so they would, they would generally, yeah, they would generally say, like, it only has kind of, traditionally, it's like two or three functions. It's like national defense, maybe um, police, and maybe courts, that mm. kind of, like, and that's pretty much it. And everything else is basically free market. Uh, but, yeah, and then there are those of us who think that's inconsistent. We believe actually everything should just be privately done. It should be private, even private courts and private national defense. And private, or national defense, I guess, doesn't really make as much sense in that context, but you get the idea, right? Like you might have private defense agencies and it might be funded through insurance, you know? So there might be some big skyscraper and that skyscraper will normally need insurance against fire or something else. Well, similarly, it might need defense against an attack. And then guess what? Insurance companies will be the ones who might pull together some of those funds for this little city area. And then that could form part of the defensive budget, if you will. Um, but I also think Bitcoin is going to take us into a world something closer to that. It may mm -hmm. not be anarcho-capitalist, but it may be more like Bitcoin citadels. And there'll be, you know, maybe it, it might superficially look more like a feudal system, like a king or a lord. But I think it might be more like a private opt-in sort of city, right? And so there are people doing this kind of thing. So I've interviewed uh, Titus Gable of the Free Private Cities Project. Yeah. That's one example. And I think that's now being led by Rahim Tagiza Degen. So I've, I've interviewed Rahim as well. But I think that's also another idea of how this may go in a way that's more libertarian direction, but not necessarily anarcho-capitalist, even if that's the ideal. Those free private cities, um, or, I mean, because my problem with the Citadel idea is I think of it as a bunch of people, they've made <laughs> a whole bunch of money in Bitcoin, they get to go and build their Citadel, they get to put up the walls, and they get to you know, hide from the peasants. It makes me think of the film, the Day of the Dead, uh, Ramirez. Is it Ramirez who made the zombie films? Right, and they're just kind of... Day of the Dead. They're so, a little enclosure against the, the zombies. zombies. Yeah, no, but the, the, great, the, the great thing with that film is what he did is create two classes, the humans and the zombies, and the zombies were kept out of this kind of like a citadel, essentially speaking. And it kind of makes me think of that as like, is it only for the wealthy? Like, how do you get into the citadel if you don't have Bitcoin wealth? Are you somebody who's recruited in to come in the day and do jobs, but are you excluded from the Citadel? Yeah, so it's a hard question. And I would say the way I think about it is I think Bitcoin is generally just going to change the whole world. Yep. Right? I think it's going to make the whole world richer, more prosperous, and it is effectively longer term going to make everyone have better rights and better prosper prosperity. But in that, call it short to medium term transition, the, the Citadel, and if you remember, this even harkens back to the original Citadel's post back in 2013-14. The idea was, oh, there's these rich Bitcoiners and they need to go live in the Citadel because people are, people are after them. Yeah. And it's kind of like a fan fiction thing. And they, uh, and they were saying, oh, like known Bitcoiners were hunted down and, you know, people were going after them. And so maybe we're in trouble, Pete. But um, the broader idea was more like a protection idea. Now, of course, we joke about it. I joke, I sign off every podcast with I'll see you in the Citadels. But... <laughs> I think there's different conceptions of Citadel, right? Some people think of it as like it's virtual reality or it's like a personal, it's just your home. And then, yeah, the idea, it's more like a group of Bitcoin people who want to defend, band together in defense. But also, I think of it like there's going to be like zones of opportunity, right? So in this, maybe an analogy could be like how Hong Kong and Singapore rose up. And then because there was all this economic opportunity there, 
people wanted to come and work mm -hmm. there. And they might start off at a you know, quote-unquote lower socioeconomic station, but you had a chance to rise up and people could move and work from different countries all around Asia and they went to Hong Kong because there was opportunity there. So it's like a, a virus that builds from a new set of rules, yeah, a, yeah. a, a new form of governance, and that uh, a bit like Bitcoin is the best form of money, people, when they realize they want to hold it more, uh, the Citadel might be the best form of uh, governance and um, yeah. You know, uh, yeah. social and to, cohesion. And to key into that idea, I see it like it's competitive jurisdictions. Yeah. And so it's not That's one good. Citadel, it's many Citadels. And then over time, people can experiment and see, oh, this, this rule uh, went in place at this Citadel, but it wasn't here. And this one did way better. So that's a bad rule, you know? And so- It's a bit like the US state system. Yes, so it's like competitive federalism. The mm -hmm. idea is that people can, uh, if one state is making bad decisions, people will leave. Which they're doing. Exactly. And I think we are, the world is morphing into that. And this is kind of like the sovereign individual and related ideas. Well, we're both thinking about that for different reasons at the, yeah. at the moment. Um, so wh why do you think it's never happened? I mean, you might give me some example or some. Yeah, Iceland and Wild West, and there's yeah. some of these examples that. But, but, but um, yeah. do, do you? Because sometimes I think, well, perhaps this is just the natural evolution of human organization. We went, you know, started in caves and we went up through the feudal system and then we went through different ages and we are where we are now. Like, statism is one step towards the next system. We, we keep kind of evolving and learning what works and what doesn't. But what do you think has not happened? So, yes, yeah, it's a good question. I, I would say it's like. So there's an analogy people make with this, this concept called G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton's fence. And it's this idea of, oh, this fence, whatever, we don't see why it's there, let's just remove it. And it's like, no, if you don't know why it was put there, you shouldn't be taking it away because it might exist for a reason you don't understand that we don't know. And so I could sort of see an argument where maybe, you know, states have formed in certain ways because we, we couldn't get past them. But maybe in the future we'll actually have a way to get past them because we'll have good enough defense and good enough, you know, private defense and private law and private examples that allow people to move on past that. But to answer your question as to why we don't see anarcho-capitalism today, well, there's a few answers there. One is there's no world government. So the countries of the world are effectively in a state of anarchy with each okay. other. Okay. That's one example. But the other example is, I think, more of a biological one. So I've seen others, other leading, like leading, like a leading libertarian, Walter Block, has spoken about his idea, and I, I kind of agree with it. Maybe there's a biological urge or tendency that we want to be nice, nice. And so what works in a family, which I agree with, right? Within your family, you're not an anarcho-capitalist charging your son, for the, you know, you, you look after your son or your daughter, your, your, your mama, your father. So what works in the family being nice and a socialist inside your family, in, in that kind of context, doesn't work at a, glo at a nation level. So the way I view it is within your family, of course, you're looking after them or maybe your close friends, you, you, just, you just pay or you just look after them. But at a nation level, I think it doesn't work. And that's where I think the breakdown is. And so mm. I don't see it like, so for me, I don't, my issue is not with hierarchy in general. Mm -hmm. I believe in meritocracy and mm -hmm. people who are competent and good producing and, you know, but for me, it's a, it's, it comes down to what is the correct private property theory? What is, the right, what is the right property theory? And my view is more like private property theory and the libertarian aspect of politi uh, political philosophy, that's the way we should be 
thinking about it. That's the just way to do it. It's justice. That's how do, I see it. Do you not think that anarcho-capitalists and libertarians should engage more in politics? I know there are political wings of mm. libertarians and they disagree with those who say you shouldn't. Yeah. But like, uh, I, I've brought this up a few times. My brother says to me, we, we're in a constant state of anarchy. You have, mm. you have uh, uh, on people on the left, on the right, on the center, you have mm. uh, anarcho-capitalists, so you have libertarians, you have communists, you have Marxists, and everyone's got their kind of idea of how we should organize ourselves, mm. and the, you know, how we should govern. And he said, you kind of get the best you can get by the pull the push and pull from everyone. So the, the traditional left to right, if you go to socialist, the right end up uh, uh, tending to, you know, coming in the next elections and campaign based on the fact that you'd have been taxed too much or the other, and vice versa. When there's a big wealth disparity, the left can come in and try and off, offer social programs. Do you not think if the libertarians and the anarcho-capitalists engage in the political process, actually they would have solid arguments to just reduce the size of government and actually start taking society towards a kind of a place that respects property rights. Right, yeah, it's an interesting way to frame it. And even in the libertarian world, there are big debates on this, yeah. on this exact topic. So for example, someone like Dave Smith, right? So he's uh, in the- he's a comedian. He, yeah, he's did, a comedian. Did he represent the Libertarian Party or was he the press so, secretary or something? I mean, it's one of those things where he's kind of well-known within the Libertarian Party and he's like one of the world's you know, top well-known libertarians. And so someone like him versus the views of, let's say, someone like, a good example would be Tho Bishop. So Tho Bishop is, he works at Mises Institute and they've had a debate actually on this exact topic. So it was like, should libertarians pursue the political strategy of having the Libertarian Party? Uh, or should they be trying to work inside the Republican Party? And uh, sorry, to be clear, they both believe they should be kind of using some form of political approach. So for example, Dave Smith inside the Libertarian Party or Tho Bishop and talking about how there should be the Liberty Republican, right? That there should be like libertarians who should just join the Republican Party and just try to pull it in that direction. Because they've already got the weight. Right, to try to do it that way. And then the other angle is more like, no, agorism, right? Do kind of counter, like counter, uh, counter economics, right? Or, um, but I think my thought on this is more like Bitcoin is going to make states a lot smaller and it's going to force it. How? Because government right now can cheaply print a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Fiat credit allows big government. And so in my view, once we move to a Bitcoin standard, and who knows when, it could be 10, 15, 20 years from now, we don't know. But I think as that transition happens, debt becomes so much more expensive. Mm -hmm. And that will force governments to become smaller. So mm -hmm. that's really my long-term vision of how this is actually going to play out to give us, in my view, a society closer to a libertarian idea, even if it's not anarcho-capitalist, fine. I'll, I'll, it's, an, it'll, it's, an it's an improvement over what we have today. So Bitcoin's a tool to take you towards that, that yeah. allows you to avoid engaging in the political process. Somewhat, but I see it like you might as well, and so a good example is this whole recent infrastructure bill, right? Yeah. So you would have seen you know, fighting on, on, uh, uh, on, this, on different sides where people were like, no, I don't even bother engaging with the state, screw that. And then the other side was more like, look guys, you can make a call to your congressman or your you know, senator and uh, you can try to influence this discussion. Uh, and so I see it like, you know, Bitcoin is the main tool, right? Stack Bitcoin and bring about the Bitcoin standard. If you can stave off the worst of the government regulation by making a call, if I was an American citizen, I would have made a call. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I viewed it like it would have been a low-hanging fruit. Okay. Even though I don't like politics, there's always that saying, 
Just because you're not interested in politics doesn't mean politics isn't interested in you. Okay. So I, I would view it as like a defensive measure to sort of stave off the worst of it while Bitcoin's network effect continues to grow. How did you end up like in this position that you are? You know, what is the background that led you? Because I think everybody's position usually is based on their background, like where they grew up, what their parents are like, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. There's a different background. But, but how did you end up being... A libertarian. Yeah. So for me, I was on IRC, Internet Relay Chat, for people who aren't familiar with that. And Old so, school. Yeah, I was like 14 years old and I was on IRC. I went on some Oz Politics channel and this guy kept linking to Mises Daily articles. And it, it was like so different to what I was learning at school, right? Because it was like Mises Institute, all this Austrian economic stuff. Mm-hmm. And then at school, they're teaching all this Keynesian stuff. And I'm like, this stuff makes way more sense. And so I slowly... You know, I wasn't reading the thousand-page textbooks or books then at that age. But then later on, so you, so I read Mises Daily, and that puts it into like an article format. And then slowly, I just, you know, you sl- slowly laddered up and up, and just thought, yeah, look, I think the Austrians are correct on this, as in the Austrian economists. Yeah, yeah. And so that was my journey into becoming a libertarian. And so then. I, yeah, so essentially then later Bitcoin happened. This is all before Bitcoin. Yeah. And then later I saw, you know, saw Bitcoin and had it explained to me the right way. And it, that was when it hit the, you know, it was like, yeah, how could I not be, you know? So that for me, it, perhaps it's an unusual journey because a lot of people come the other way around. They would have come into Bitcoin yeah. and then they would have heard me or Safedean or Reed VJ or, you know, Pierre and people. And then they would have learned a little bit about Austrian economics because of getting into Bitcoin. That's essentially my journey. Yeah. I'd never heard of it before Bitcoin. And now I'm learning in public and asking these questions. <laughs> I'm asking the questions in public and get yelled at rather than do it privately. Did you did you have similar questions like I had? I'm assuming you did. As in you didn't just like go straight away, this is did you you know, did you have similar questions like I have? Oh yeah, as like, in yeah. yeah, because here's the other thing, right? Like so like I guess broader libertarian questions. I would be like challenging them back being like, well, hang on, if we had no government, wouldn't there be like gangs roaming the streets? Yeah. And you know, and like, hey, when I was 15 and 16 and 17, yeah, I was going through all these same questions. And then by the time I was about 18 or 19, that was when I was kind of like, yeah, I think anarcho-capitalism is the correct, you know, political philosophy, if you will. Even as I said, it may never happen, but that's the ideal that we should be striving for. And so... Uh, there are. There, it takes a lot of reading and work. So you read about, you know, Rothbard talks about private defense agencies or Bob Murphy has done a lot of talks about the market for security. What would the market for private security look like? And various concepts in, in, that, in that way. And Hans-Hermann Hopper's book, The Myth of National Defense. Uh, so it, it's, it's a mix of all of these things that you read these and you start to think. And sometimes you, the logic sort of clicks in because it's the same kind of logic. It's the same kind of idea. Well, I don't want the government to make, you know, food. I want the private, I want the free market to make food. It's the same sort of idea. I want the free market to provide defense and law and all of these things. But even with all these writings, and I've read, you sent me one recently about COVID, where I was like, wow, yeah. like a real, made me rethink a lot of things. And I appreciate all the stuff you sent me because I do, I always read it. Um, I do also say, but isn't, this is still theory. These, you know, these these are these are, you know, these are writings that are theory. There are people out there who will explain to you that Marxism is a best way to govern society because, in theory, for them it works. But in practice, uh, any form of kind of Marxism, communism, it's a complete failure and leads to the deaths of millions of people. But isn't there like a 
isn't in part of this, do you have to accept that this is still theory and might not play out how Rothbard writes? And so how... think of it this way. Like, it's, it's the same kind of logic though, right? It's the same kind of logic that you wouldn't want the government to make your, you know, to be the baker. You'd want a free market baker. Of you want a private yeah. baker. So it's the same kind of idea. Well, government security, and, and let's break it down into different problems, right? You've got the law. What is the law? And then what's the security situation? So you might have like, you know, different, you know, free market courts, judges, and so on, who are helping, uh, who are helping sort of codify and help apply the law when they make a ruling in a case. And then the police and courts, or sorry, the police aspect could be maybe replaced with, say, private security or other means of defense, right? And even basic things like, you know, whatever, if it's like, uh, security cameras and monitoring technology or guard dogs or whatever, drone defense, who knows, right, in the future. Um, but I think it, it's, to me, it just comes back to that same idea of we want to privatize as many things as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. That's, that would be the general idea from my point of view. Now, do, now, I know politically a lot of those ideas are not feasible today in 2021, mm-hmm. but over time, as Bitcoin forces governments to be smaller, then I think the political parties will find more, um, they'll find more juice. They'll get, they'll be more able to do that kind of thing because government will have to tighten its belt. And maybe the fact that Bitcoin is like a, a creeping force, it, it becomes like an A-B test. Okay, what, what are we going to get rid of first? What are the, you know, the things that we don't need? And because yeah. like last is going to be defense and security probably. Yeah. So it's like, what are the things we don't need? What are these ridiculous departments we're creating, ridiculous regulations? You know, exactly. I think when I was up in Wyoming, I think it was uh, Tyler Lindholm was telling me about, like you had to get a license to be a hairdresser or something. He was like, this is ridiculous, you know. Um, so let me talk through the ones where I've, the ones I've struggled with most. Um, because like I said, I agree with pretty much everything you're saying. It's, it's that, how does the theory play out reality? And mm-hmm. um, so I really do struggle with the idea of a non-centralized security. Uh, and the reason I struggle with it is when uh, I understand private, the idea of private security forces because we have them now. It's yeah. like we have an, an, a national health service in, service in the UK, but I still have private health. So I understand it. But um, the interview where Weinstein did with his brother, where Eric did with his brother, he talked about one of the best things we did was allow the police to have a, a monopoly on violence because, the, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to get exactly right what he said, and I know people are listening, they're going to be like, why the fuck are you talking about, Pete? I'm doing this for the sake of the debate. But he said is that a centralised, essentially a centralised police force is uh, uh, responsible to the state and therefore is um, uh, the, the public, sorry, is responsible to the public, therefore they have to follow a consistent set of rules. I've probably got this completely wrong. My worry is that why would a market for police or a market for security be better than a centralized police? Yeah, good question. So I would come back at uh, Mr. Weinstein's argument. Yeah, so, uh, let's, let's oh, just generally, I'll say just generally, yeah. think of it like this, right? The same control, and actually I've heard Bob Murphy make this argument. Bob Murphy is the best guy to speak to on this, but I'll give you my interpretation of it, right? Yeah. So it would be like, Imagine you went to a mall and like we were just teenagers playing in the mall or whatever, mall rats or whatever. And then like you, maybe you stole a chocolate bar and then like the security guy comes up and like breaks your arm and like breaks your leg and you know, goes too hard. Guess what happens? There's a market check against that. The mall is going to be like, come on, mate. He's a kid. He stole a chocolate bar. You don't just go break his arm and his leg. You would rightly say, 
you were you were too harsh there. And so that security company and that maybe that security guard would lose their job and they would choose another security agency or another security guard. It's a similar idea there. So I would see it like there should be a competitive pressure between security forces. And don't forget, they could go too hard or too soft because it can go the other way too, mm-hmm. right? So in San Francisco, they've got that, you, which you might be aware or maybe listeners. $1,000. Yeah. Uh, they're only going to police people who steal over $1,000 worth of stuff. They go into the shops and they're walking out with... And so literally you've got people yeah. just going in there and so that's going too soft. Yeah. So I view it like you can have a problem either way, too hard or too soft. And so the market over time selects based on the combination of the different preferences of people and the consumers of the shop owner versus the people who go into that shop versus the people in that area, it sort of selects for what is overall best on balance based on people's individual demands. That that does make sense. We still have that. I mean, in the UK, we have the Independent Police Complaints Commission who investigate situations with police which, you know, are questionable whether, like, someone died in custody and, you know, people do lose their jobs. So that we do have that check and balance. What you're saying is we don't have that competition that who can be the better police force. Right. But the, the, the switch side to that is we have uh, services provided by centralised police that I wonder if would they be provided by private police forces or private security. So private security is great for things that you want yourself. So I can have uh, a police service that I can call, but I can have a private security on my house. But what about things that the police or you know, uh, investigation agencies do? You know, where's the incentive to investigate murders? You know, if there was like a serial killer, where's the investigate? Where's the incentive to clamp down on internet paedophiles or terrorism? Those things where it's kind of like it's something that the whole nation needs. Yeah, so, How does that work into yeah. this? So a couple of things there. So think of it like you might have an insurance agency, yeah. and that insu- and these different insurance agencies might be contracted to protect you, mm-hmm. and. Maybe that there's, and so the way I would think of it, or the way I would explain it as well, is if you can think of a situation where enough humans want something, the market is going to find a way to provide that defense. And so, and it doesn't necessarily have to be like, oh, protection only for the rich. I actually think it, it might be more like different areas might come up with ways of, oh, hey, let's all chip in, you know? And it might be like, kind of like a HOA, or, you know, this, in the same way that a HOA might, or they might all chip in for raids. And I know that can, sort of look superficially similar to what we have now, but the difference is you can fire them or you can, you, you can um, get a different police force or a security force. And so I see it a little bit more like that. And like I was saying, this is in the context of a society and a world that is going to become so much richer. So we're all going to become a lot richer and can afford yeah. these things. And look, sorry to interrupt, because there's trade-offs, right? Yeah. And, and sometimes you have to look at the net benefit. Like, yeah. is, is there a net benefit to society? Mm-hmm. And you might have some things you lose and some things you gain, but I... I I do look at you know, different situations and say, well, we've got things we can compare into the real world. Mm. You say, like, we might have, uh, you know, can poor people afford the security? But uh, people can be greedy, you know, and, and if we have different uh, uh, neighbourhoods, say we have the rich neighbourhoods, the middle class, we might have also have the poor neighbourhoods. Can the poor neighbourhoods afford a private police force? Probably not. They might give it up. That's might, they might have to self-police. So do we create this divided society where there's certain things that everyone needs and they can't get? And look, the NHS is a great example. A lot of people externally to the UK don't like the NHS. The great thing about the NHS in the UK is everybody has healthcare cover. And yes, we have to steal. (laughs) We have to steal the tax from other people to pay for it. 
but it doesn't matter who you are, if you have a problem, you have access to a national health service. And I myself, as somebody with a bit more money, I have private health care, so when I bust my back, I'm I've got surgery fixed, for yeah. this. Yeah. Uh, we know, like in here in the US, where not everybody has private health care because they can't afford it, there are people in situations I know that have had uh, certain operations which have financially ruined them for the rest of their life or can't afford to get treatments they need. So I kind of feel like, this is why I think I like, I like the idea of minicism because I feel like there's certain things that are the benefit to being centralised. And I'm, I, I've, I'm still not convinced on police force. Right. I'm convinced on private security. You get it in South Africa. Yeah. People, they have private security and people yeah. live in you know, gated neighbourhoods. But that is a separation of rich and poor. Yeah, so let me, let me answer a few of those points. So firstly, we have to remember, the government doesn't necessarily do a good job today for the poor people. There are examples where, you know, there's big wait lists, even in, yeah. it depends on which country, it's right? So, I mean, yeah, yeah, and there's wait lists in, in, in the NHS or in Canada for their system. Uh, and so we have to remember that the, world, the government doesn't actually provide a great service even as it is today. And so that's one point. And I also think it's fair to point out the government has made has inhibited the creation of a private market. So because of all the regulation, all the licensing requirements that, that are there, it actually drives up the cost. Mm -hmm. And so probably here in the US is another good example. Because of various tax compliance or tax laws, they made the insurance happen through employers. And so now here in America, it's all about, oh, who's your employer? Because who are they? They need to be providing you the health insurance. Well, guess what? If we had a fully free market in insurance, and a fully free market, the cost for health would have been far cheaper. And so that would have made it accessible in that way. You know, and another example as well, uh, I was just recently in Colombia, right? And I, we met um, a Bitcoiner who uh, came from a poorer area of Colombia. And he was saying, there are some areas there where the police literally do not even go. And that is a state already. They're already paying tax. And they, they aren't getting protection right now. So it's hard for me to, I guess, believe this idea that somehow... You know, the government is going to provide for all when already the government is here today in many countries around the world, 200 of them, and there are a lot of people who don't get protection and who don't get healthcare or they've got a huge wait time for healthcare or the cost of healthcare is raised dramatically, even for the private people. You know? but, but what I wonder is, are those places like you were in Colombia, are they gradually, as, as the wealth increases in the nation, uh, getting more towards, directionally towards what we have in the UK and you have in Australia? And it's, you know, they are getting better. Uh, and could we potentially, under libertarian ideas, see places like the UK get gradually worse because we create this divide? Like, health is a tricky one because um, because that, is, that isn't as black and white for me as, say, security. Right. Security, me, me I, I do struggle with that idea. I do think, I do think we, we create a, the have and have not too much with in terms of, like, private security and... I think certain places can end up just becoming like violent ghettos without a standardized police force because if it comes down to who can afford it, some people just will have to forego certain services. So I think for me, security and health are slightly different. Um, there's no question there on that one. Right. So would you, okay, but think of it like this like, remember, already a lot of these people are paying right now. Yeah. And a lot of tax. So, you know, we're paying a lot of tax and the government is not exa not necessarily providing a great service. And I think it, the important thing is always to think about what would the alternative be, right? So imagine if there were no government, would we just like be like, put our hands up and say, oh, well, guess we'll all die now. No, like we would 
have private security. We would put in some effort into that. And here's the other thing. It doesn't necessarily have to be a for-profit venture. It could be, like, under anarcho-capitalism, it is totally reasonable that you might have a neighborhood security, right? They might mm-hmm. be sort of like a, we all, we're, we're living in the town, we're living in the town together and we all voluntarily do, like, a neighborhood watch thing. You know, there's different, all sorts of different ways it could be done. And so the way I'm thinking about libertarianism and anarcho-capitalism is more this idea that, People can try things in different areas, and then once you see it works, ah, it works there, let's replicate that here. And we're just going to do that all over the world. And so even with like, whatever, even with COVID or whatever, like you see, oh, this treatment worked there, let's, let's try it here, whether it's you know, whatever other things. So how much of this is you, how much of this is you think that this is a, uh, like a more efficient system, and how much of you is this is based more on the morality of nobody having... Good question. Yeah, you know, good question. So there are different approaches in the kind of libertarian world on this. So some people are more, what we would say, deontological. So they're saying, even if it caused a worse world, I would still believe in this because that's the justice. That's just. So I don't agree with that one. Right. But that's kind of like one way you could frame it. Then, Sorry, just yeah. the, the reason I don't agree with that one is because I think humans organize themselves. So whilst that person thinks that... Other humans are going to organize themselves and say, well, that's not better, so we're not going to have that. Yeah, so, that, but to be fair, that's kind of like a steel man of a position, where, right? But I think most of those deontological libertarians happen to also believe it would be more efficient, right? So right. they believe that it is actually the just and efficient way. But then there are others, like someone like, say, a David Friedman, he might be more in the kind of consequentialist camp where he might not necessarily be making a moral argument like, like the deontological guys would, but he might argue it more like just even on a utilitarian basis, we would, we would be better off. And so that's why we should uh, pursue that approach. And then perhaps the third bucket is someone like a Michael Humer who might make an argument more like it's common sense. It's like the same way that you or I would treat each other is the way that the state should be treated by us, that mm-hmm. it should have no special rights. It should not have the ability to compel us to pay it taxes or to obey its rules, just like you and I don't have to com- obey each other's rules above and beyond, say, the private property aspect of it. Like, if I'm on your house, I need to obey your rules kind of thing. But what if people don't want this? Because that's the tricky thing. It's like, you've explained to me, and I, like I said, I agree with you, and yeah. I know I'm like a fairly decent person, I'm not a violent person, uh, I'm, I'm honest, and, you know, I, I don't... You know, if I have an arrangement with you, I'm going to pay you, and et cetera, et cetera. Like, I know I'm like that. There's a lot of shitty people in the world as well who aren't like that, who this kind of society would be an opportunity for them to exploit people. Um, so I, is there a way, is there, have you ever, or, or do, is there any discussions in your communities that, that, that you can coexist between those who want statism and those who want anarcho-capitalism? So think of it like this. The whole world... If it were anarcho-capitalist, people, there's nothing stopping everyone opting in to a socialist com- commune or something yeah. like that. But we aren't allowed to have what we want living in a broader socialist world. Yeah. Like, yeah. It, you know, so there's actually, a, there's actually an imbalance there, right? Uh, but I, I think this almost brings us back to the Citadels thing because it almost is like a lot of Bitcoiners and libertarian people, often Bitcoiners are libertarian-minded, though not all of them are, but many of them are minded in... Uh, of this mindset that the world is not going to give us what we want, so we're going to go galt, right? We're going to go off and create our own. And so that's where some of this idea of the Citadel comes from a little bit because they think, you know what, this government is not giving us a good deal. We're going to go over and create our own little thing or at least try to 
opt out in along little ways that we can. Now, there's different ideas around this. I think the broader idea is more like the broader world is going to change because the political yep. is going to the political uh, what would I say environment landscape is going to change because of Bitcoin. Have you had any new questions today, or this is this the stuff you get asked every time? Oh no, I think it's. I mean, it's. I, I think it's like it's. It's kind of like an interesting mix of like Bitcoin and Liberty. How do these things mix, and what is it going to look like five, ten, fifteen years down? I feel like I'm just figuring it out as I go. Yeah. You know, over time and like different things click. Um, I've had a, f- a couple of people write to me and say that I think you're a menacist, Pete. You're a menacist. <laughs> you need that little bit of stage stuff. Next up, I talk to Stefan more about libertarianism. Before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. And first up today, we have Sportsbet.io, the very best place online gaming because they're so badass that they accept Bitcoin. And now the football season has started. And it's, you know, it's been a really strange start to the season. We've got Tottenham at the very top of the league after winning their first three games and Arsenal at the bottom of the league, which is hilarious. Must be great for Tottenham fans. But it's a strange start to the season. But I'm out there, you know. My Liverpool team. We might have drawn a game, but we're going good. I feel we feel we're going to have a hot season. Now, look, if you are interested in putting a bet on sports, football, anything out there, Sportsbet has you covered. Alongside football, they support tennis and motorsports. They've got US sports and they even support esports. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. And next up, we have the Exodus wallet, who I use exclusively as my mobile and desktop wallet for my Bitcoin. And as you know, because I talk about it all the time, UX is super important to me. So when the team at Exodus reached out and they said, Pete, we want to sponsor your podcast, I was like, well, come on, I've got to play with it first. I'm not just going to take your money. Do you know what? They crushed it, which is why I'm happy to recommend it to you, my friends, and my family. Now, Exodus Desktop gives you a way to secure and manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application. And with their mobile wallet, you can send and receive safely using a QR code or address, knowing that Exodus automatically checks all addresses for errors. So make sure you check it out at exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. And that is E-X-O-D-U-S. And lastly, this week, we have Casa, which is the safest way for you to store your Bitcoin. Now, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps, and phishing attacks, there are all too many ways for your Bitcoin to be lost or stolen. But with Casa, you never have to worry about this shit again. Because with a Casa multi-sig wallet, you can take custody of your Bitcoin, but you only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets, and you get to distribute those wallets into different locations. And that is going to protect you from a range of mistakes errors and vulnerabilities. Now, if you want to find out more about this, you can email me, you can drop me a DM. I always reply. I've been a customer for about a year now and happy to answer your questions. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Okay, well, um, let's talk about Australia. Yeah, oh, it's crazy. Okay, because that, that, that is the uh, I told you so moment. Because like, Australia is so fucking weird, man. Like, I grew up thinking Australia was like this really cool, kind of relaxed country where, you know, people just surf and play sports and everyone's cool with each other. And then the more I've learned over the last kind of three, four years, it's certainly more authoritarian than the UK. Yeah. Um, the controls over the press, uh, what's happened during the COVID, the brutality of the police, the the rules, some of the mental things that you're seeing politicians say. Yeah. Did I see it today about someone about uh, like a, in Queensland they're creating a quarantine camp? Yeah. And it's Permanent. just like, yeah, these things. You look at them going, this this looks like a Nazi concentration camp. It does. I mean, I know it isn't the same, and we shouldn't compare everything to the Nazis. But what's, what's what's going like? 
Has Australia always been like this? I'm not sure how long you lived there, or is this like a recent, like five, ten year thing? So I went to Australia as a two year old. Two year old. And I was there for over 30 years. So I grew up there. Yes, your whole life. And basically my whole life I was there. Now I've recently left Australia and I'm basically not planning to go back anytime soon, but absolutely the culture was on the down, right? And so if you ask people outside Australia, what's your conception of Australia? They would have said, oh, you know, Paul Hogan and Crocodile Dundee and this kind of alpha charismatic guy. And think of the big Australian exports, right? Hugh Jackman, Chris Hemsworth, these kind of, you know, jovial kind of easygoing characters who, you know, who always like, they're not, they don't take themselves too seriously. That, That was the perception of Australia. And I think the culture was on a serious downtrend. So you know why? I think it's a few things. But if I had to guess, Australia was, Australia has gone complacent. That's the short answer. So Australia was the lucky country. They had no recession for 27 or 28 years, something ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And I think what happened is they got complacent and they gave up the guns in 96. And that... That was after a mass shooting, right? Yeah, so there was a Port Arthur um, mass shooting. And basically the right wing or centre right politician at that time or Prime Minister John Howard mm-hmm. took away the guns. And because he was from the right wing party, and obviously all the left wing side were going with it, so that was essentially what happened. And I think from there, it was coasting off inertia. And so, you know, growing up, and I'm sure you, like people lived more brutal lives, like they just did, like that was just a fact, right? We've created maybe the world has created this kind of super safe society. And now because everyone's looking for a reason to be offended, everyone's looking for a reason they're not safe, now they're starting to impose things that just would have been completely unheard of. And so this notion that you can't, you stop people from seeing their own family when they're dying, people stopping their weddings, funerals, all kinds of things. And all of these things have been going on in Australia. And because Australians have been so coddled and just become, they just became complacent. So this is, I, that in my view is what's happened. That's kind of the short answer. So think of it this way. Yeah. If COVID happened 15 years ago, no, no chance this would have happened in Australia. But the, the, the constant degradation, and there's a, there's a few factors that go into it, right? Some of it's global, some of it's Australia. I would say part of it is the news. So the news have, maybe they've lost their budgets and lost their revenues that they normally had. So now they, they get a lot of clickbait from driving fear. And because right. they drove a lot of fear at the start, most of the population believes, oh, see, that, see we locked down and da, 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 look how good we are. And oh, if anything happened, oh, it's because they didn't lock down hard enough or early enough. That's the conversation. Yeah, we've had. had, what, how many deaths in Australia? Oh, I haven't even checked. I'm, I'm assuming it's like tens or hundreds. Like, yeah, it's pretty low. Yeah, yeah whereas the UK is 140,000, we say. With yeah. or from, but that's yeah, the debate. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, we're saying four to five million globally. Australia can say, look, we're a success here. Um, and there are people who defend that. I've seen it this week on Twitter. Oh, yeah. I've seen people defend it and said, look, I'm, I'm still fairly free. I'm locked down occasionally, but we have, we have saved many, many lives in Australia. They have a point, whether you agree or not, they have a point, which is a point you can debate on. It's like, but you, obviously it's not gonna work for you because you're a libertarian, but what, what the weird thing for me about Australia is like, what's the end game here? Mm. So they, they seem to think, oh, just get the vaccine up and that- We know that doesn't work. But it doesn't even work. I mean, if you look at Israel- Sorry, sorry, yeah. sorry let me just- the vaccine works, 
it, 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 but you have to have the nuance, okay? It reduces um, uh, deaths and it, it reduces sickness, okay? I'm saying that, that I, from the data I've read, that's factual. But at the same time, you can still get sick and you can still get COVID if you, you are can still pass it on. And you can still pass it on. So if the vaccines were 100% effective, it gave genuine, uh, uh, it was a genuine immunity from it. Immunity? That's... Yeah. Yeah. Um, then you could see the logic of the argument. But the yeah, logic now it makes no sense. Yeah. doesn't make any sense. So I'm like, what's the end game here? So politicians made an error. They should never have locked down. But they, and, uh, Ron DeSantis put it well. He's saying, they're making you cover your face so they can cover their ass. They screwed up. They made a big mistake. And they don't want to walk it back. And because they've scared the population, put them into hysteria, and that's why I call it hysteria 19, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm not a COVID denier in that sense. I believe it is a real virus. I believe it's something like two or three times what a flu season is. So society should have done two or three times what they do for a flu. They should not have done a hundred or a thousand times what they've done for a flu season. And that's the problem. But they don't want to admit that. And so because that, that's been, even if, if I look back at the media in Australia, the way they talk about it is like, oh, see, you just didn't contact trace hard enough. And, oh. and then because there are some people who have been so pushed into this state of fear and they've been told, you know, they've been shielded the vaccine harder and harder, they think the way out is, oh, see, you just need to mandate the vaccine and then we're all going to be out of this. But it's not. It's not going to do it. But now, They're going to have yeah, to mandate it in Australia. They basically are. Because if you look at what's going on, especially in New South Wales, Gladys Berejiklian has said, oh, if you're fully vaccinated, now you're going to have a little more freedom than the non-vaccinated. That was un- You tweeted that out, right? Yeah. That was unbelievable. History will not judge Gladys well for that. No. They are really going down a bad pathway. And that's why I left, and I'm probably not going back, but I, f- I really feel for family and friends back there in Australia and in Sydney and everywhere else. But that statement was very much like, you only have the freedoms that we give you. 100%. And so as a libertarian, my view of rights is you, they are inalienable. And that's maybe more of an American conception of rights. Yeah. You, they are inalienable. The government does not give you rights. It's on the government not to impinge on your rights. This is what Zubu was talking about with Rogan the other day. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah negative rights. Yeah, I mean, and that's like a common libertarian framing of rights. Is that it's a freedom from, not a freedom to. So that's another way to put it, right? So, yeah, so ultimately, the problem is in Australia, they don't have a principled base on these things. They just kind of, they were lucky. They were the lucky country. They got lucky, they, and they were kind of broad-minded, egalitarian-minded, and now when something hit, they didn't have the right principle about them, and the, they didn't have that same level of, like, fight back or resistance that now a lot of them are docile. So... I don't know the latest numbers, right? But when I saw some numbers back in, say, May or like that, it was something like 20% of the population wanted more restrictions, 60% were okay with that level, like before going back into lockdown, and then only 20% wanted less restrictions. So in other words, 80%. most of the population, 80% of the population were kind of okay with it or wanted more restriction. Do you think that's... I think you would say that's because of fear, but do you not also think there are other people who are just like, look... I'm, I like being part of a society. I like being part of uh, a society that agrees that, that we'll, we'll function together, we'll make decisions together for the best of everyone. That's not me defending it. I'm just saying, do you yeah. not think that... So I understand like, yeah. why people can think it's like that. But here's the thing. And again, this goes into more... Similar to that idea of like why are so many people 
socialists is because of that biological urge. They think, oh, I've got to protect, or I've got to, you know, it's my family, I've got to look after them. But they don't understand by doing this, they're causing more unseen deaths. But it just takes a real, like, you have to actually think that through, right? Because without wealth, you know, at the extreme level, people starve. But without wealth as well, people might be losing jobs, families mm -hmm. might be breaking down, people might lose their businesses that they spent decades building up. And so it's going to cause future deaths, but they won't necessarily be COVID ones. And there'll be other deaths. There'll be deaths from things like undiagnosed cancer. Oh, but they're happening. We know they're happening. Yeah. Suicides and... And the suicide call, uh, last, the, the interesting stat I heard was the suicide hotline, I'm not sure if it was New South Wales or Australia, hit, an old, hit an, a 57-year high. That's how many people are dialing into the lifeline suicide hotlines. Because the people creating the rules, they're not affected. They're yeah. still paid. And here's the other factor to bring in. Over time, the growth of the state, there are a lot more people getting paid by the state. So they're getting a check either way. Mm -hmm. So they either work directly for the government, they're getting some kind of job keeper, job seeker, like welfare payment. And so a lot of them have been placated with that. And so it has fiat money has allowed governments of the world to kind of disregard the consequences or to act like there are no consequences for not working. Whereas if you look at, say, the poorer countries or the countries reliant on tourism, they are more open. Why? Because they know, they know where their bread is buttered. They know they have to stay open because, yes, there might be some COVID deaths, but you're causing more deaths elsewhere in other ways, just in unseen ways. And so because of the massive panic and hysteria, COVID, it became COVID monomania. It's like the only thing that matters is COVID, nothing else. No other health outcomes, no other life outcomes matter now in the, in the COVID hysteria age. I think people struggle to change their mind on, on things. That's that kind of like... It's hard to flip back. It's a really like poor human quality when you... Like, you know I did. We had the, literally had the Twitter debate the other day where like somebody brought up something I'd said and I said, no, I've changed my mind on that. You know, yeah. I, I got it wrong. Uh, it feels like people, they, it's almost like politicians can't ever change their mind because... Well, sometimes that means they get voted out, you know, yeah. or their party will, will oust them because, oh, you were wrong there, right? And so uh, you can sort of understand in that sense, obviously I don't agree with them, but you can understand from their point of view why they're bullishly trying to just charge on through and now they're trying to slowly, and they keep pushing the goalposts, right? There's been constant goalpost shifting. Mm -hmm. Obviously, two weeks to stop the spread. Where, what are we now? 16 months, 18 months? into two weeks to stop the spread? Yeah, but also we're part of that. I think this, look, I think sometimes you have to say that it was like an evolving situation. You know, when I put out that tweet that pissed a lot of people off, you know, the reality was we were seeing, <laughs> yeah, those videos of people dropping dead in China, which we know are bullshit. Well, I don't know where that came from. That was kind of, <laughs> that kind of makes you think like something else is going on here because nobody else has had people dropping dead. But also, Italy got hit bad early on and the, the hospitals were overrun. So at the point where the UK was looking, like there were things that weren't looking great. You know, and, and trying to figure these things out as somebody who works with government, it must be hard. You know, what, what did, because, okay, you're, you're a libertarian, so you don't give a fuck, but like people who, who do work in government, who believe in the state, who believe in looking after their constituents, they're trying, some of them, you know, I know not everyone agree, but there are people there who do want to do the best for their constituents. You know, I don't believe every politician is an, evil person who wants control and power. I believe there are people out there who, who understand their duty as a politician and want to do good. And I think they've had to make some tough decisions and then sometimes they've had to change their mind. And they're doing it at a time where people are disagreeing. It's almost like you get yelled at on Twitter sometimes, you're like, oh, yeah. I'd get it. It's because get it. people disagree. And if you're, if you're empowering government, 
you've got a lot of people who disagree with you. You've got people on different political spectrums. So I think they have a tough job. Yeah, but I think, here's the thing. I think a lot of them are hiding. You know why? They're, they're doing the cover your ass. They are basically just saying, oh, look, this is the best health advice. No, politicians are not meant to just look at one thing. No, I agree. You know, they don't, they're not balancing across all of society. And so think of it this way. They are trading off their long-term for a short-term gain, right? Think of it this way. Fiat decisions. Exactly. Because if you're an Australian politician, particularly, or New Zealand politician, guess what? Less people are going to move to Australia. The talent is going to move out of Australia. Who's going to go and set up a business in Australia now when you could get locked down at the drop of a hat? People can't plan their weddings. Can't do, they can't even have a funeral if their mum dies or whatever. They, can't, they, they just can't plan events. What kind of a life is that? There are people stuck in their homes who have no idea, they have no light at the end of that tunnel. Yeah. They literally just feel like, I'm stuck here, I don't have a pathway out. I, oh, my overlords gave me one hour of freedom to go buy my groceries for the day. Wow. And I've got to wear a mask, which doesn't work. Oh, and I've got to, you know, and we, they're forcing the vaccine onto us and I won't get my freedoms back unless 80% of us take the vaccine. That is coercion. That is vaccine blackmail. Yeah, that's see that coercion one's a real tricky one because like uh, I, yeah, I've been very public. I I'm vaccinated and I I support the idea of vaccinations for certain demographics and uh, I don't like too much of the like there are certain people I believe should just get vaccinated. Uh, absolutely right. So but, maybe older people, yeah. maybe like unhealthy people, people with comorbidities. Right, but young, healthy. No. Well, there, there are stats out there. There, yeah. there are stats, and there's stats we don't know. There are knowns and there are unknowns. But, but I, I support that idea. But I fundamentally disagree with vaccine passports. I fundamentally disagree with any coercion around this. I mean, we've had some. Is it this week? Today in the US, they announced that you cannot get on a plane if you've not been. So they're looking at a law to do that. Yeah, which would be horrible. I mean, people will yeah. get vaccinated who didn't want to. Yeah, and a lot of people are getting vaccinated not because they're worried about COVID but because of the government rules. And, you know, you've got to, I'm sure you're familiar with the example of thalidomide, right? Yeah, of course. So, which is like the famous example on mm. this, right? It was like a drug they gave to pregnant women and those children turned out with like malformed arms and legs and things. And they only found out years later. Who are we to know? How do we even know? Like with some of these, some of these vaccines, if they don't, Maybe maybe you won't die straight away, but maybe they'll harm your immune system. Well, yeah, I mean, so, look, some of the so it's, I get a lot of emails about this. Right. I've had some quite supportive emails because I've been pro, and I've taken a lot of flack. I've had doctors and yeah. uh, uh, virologists get in touch, and they've like I'm not going to give the answers because I don't have it. But they've said uh, there is a lot of nonsense around this. Like th this, firstly, it's not a gene therapy like people right. say it is, and um, actually, this ha these technologies have been tested quite a bit. And actually, the long-term risk, yes, we don't have long-term testing, but the long-term risk is very low. We ha there, these haven't been extensively tested. I almost feel like I wish I had someone who could answer it. The, I think the bigger point is whether or not you and I can relay the right information about the risk. It's about actually personal choice. Because I was reading today about a uh, radio presenter in the UK. She got vaccinated after the first dose. She got blood clots and she died. And they said, I think it was 419 cases and 73 people have died. Now, there is a trade-off. There will be people who haven't got vaccinated, have got COVID and died. So it's worthy. It's worth knowing the numbers of both and being able to make that decision. But the point being is if you are forced to, to take a vaccine yeah, that's totally and wrong. you die, you've died because you've been coerced. 
If you've chosen not to and you get COVID and you die, at least you had to make that choice and that was your choice to make. Yeah. yeah. And, and I you think should that's, have the choice either way. Exactly. That's the point, the right? The choice I, should I, I see it like I'm, and that's the, that's the weirdest thing. There's been so much abuse and media thrown, like the way the media portray this, right? I'm an anti-vaxxer or whatever because I believe in pro-choice, right? I've had every vaccine, <laughs> I've had every other vaccine, but because I believe that you should have a choice on this one, I'm now all of a sudden I'm an anti-vaxxer, right? Whether I took it or not, I believe you should have the choice. Yeah. You know? And that's the important thing for me. And so that's been so frustrating as well. And look, if you look at the media portrayal of these things, in Australia, they're like, oh, this guy, he was positive on COVID test and they're like doing a manhunt for this yeah, guy. Yeah, the guy went missing. He was like in an elevator or something. I don't know. <laughs> but like, and the media are like helping drive this whole thing. And it's like, it's like, it's like the people in the media have no self-awareness. Is there a certain situation where you would say, okay, something centralized? Well, no, I know, I, I'm going to say it, and I know what your answer is going to be, but people will make their own decisions based on this. But, you know, for example, we're in Texas right now, and uh, Texas has been pretty open with regards to removing the mandates for masks, and it's pretty much opened up. The only people who seem to be wearing masks are people at work. Yeah. Um, but the hospitals are filling up. We know ICUs are full. We know they're running out of beds. I know this again because doctors are writing to me saying people need to see what's going on in these hospitals. We're yeah. dealing with this. They're, they're building, yeah. well, they're building extensions into car parks, etc. Um, is there ever a scenario where you think like a centralized response is required? I know, for example, when a, we have Ebola outbreaks in Africa, there is a centralized response, and they literally lock areas down. Is there ever a scenario like? I don't know. Well, I think even even in the Texas example, or even in other examples around the world. I've heard of examples where literally some staff are quitting because of a vaccine requirement, and then that's causing the shortage in staff, which in turn causes the shortage in the hospital because they don't have... It doesn't, you know, that doesn't cause a shortage yeah. in the beds. Let's, the right. beds are the number but, of beds. I mean, broadly speaking, I see it, like to the broader question that you're asking, I see it like the, let's say the Citadel manager or someone would be the one to make that decision. And... You know, they would, and again, it would be more like competitive jurisdiction. So you would see some that kind of... We're not there yet, though. Yeah, right. But even now, you would say different governments and you would look and compare. But I guess in an, in an ideal world, we would see more honest media, right, who would talk about, oh, look how bad these lockdowns have been or look how this country, these different counties in the same state, had one had a mask mandate, the other didn't, and they had, like, the same curve. No one is, like... Very few people are raising those kinds of questions and like, talking you know about what? those things. The, you know, the worst thing is, is trying to get accurate data because whatever your bias is, you can find the data that suits you. That's what I've found. Uh, I've, I've, I've literally done it. I've done it. I've gone and looked at certain issues and I've Googled based on whether I'm pro or whether I'm con and I can find data that supports me. And so it's really tricky. Think of it this way. Here's how I think of it. There should be a presumption in favour of private property and liberty. Agreed. So in order for somebody to justify a lockdown or a mask mandate or any of these restrictions, they need to be the one to prove the evidence. They can't just kind of be like, oh, it might help. Oh, this, you know, it sounds like a good idea. No, you need to prove it. You yeah, but hold on, yeah. hold on, hold on. When they do prove it, they say, well, you can't, you can't trust government data. Well, okay, so some people are like that. But I'm, like, I'm saying even like taking government data, like there are people like uh, Ian MSC on Twitter, if you look him up, he's got all these charts showing like, like different states or counties or whatever, and showing or different countries showing that 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 curve. And oftentimes people deny. There's a whole bunch of things they deny. They deny uh, seasonality. 
they deny natural immunity. They deny, they kind of push this idea that asymptomatic spread is a thing when really if, if they had just said, hey, if you have symptoms, stay home, that probably would have like done most of the work, right? And it's weird that, you know, but they, they just don't, they don't allow for this. They think the only way it got better is because of vaccines and masks and restrictions. They never say, oh, what about natural immunity? And then the conversation about natural immunity versus vaccine immunity comes in too. Yep. Because there are people, and it's like some of the work, some of the studies coming out of Israel now are saying that natural immunity is way better than vaccine immunity. You know? it, yeah, if you, if you survive and get natural immunity. Well, I mean, here's the other thing. Like we've got to, and again, we have to zoom out, right? Yeah, like yeah, Just like in Bitcoin, we have to zoom out, right? Do you know how many people die every year, just on average? Uh, in the world? Yeah. About 65 million? Yes, correct, right? Do you want to know how I know that? Uh, I don't know. Because isn't it weird that I can answer it? Oh, yeah. Because, like, could you have answered that? It's uh, Zuby did it on uh, Rogan's show literally the other day. I was like, oh, right. 65 million. Yeah, yeah, because I, I was tweeting this out a while back. I was saying, look, you guys, we have to look at the broader numbers, right? About 0.75% of the population, so 60 million out of 8 billion, die every year. Yeah. Just yeah, just normal causes. Yep. And it's all out of proportion, right? Because if you look at how many people are dying of non-COVID causes, it's way higher. Yeah. So the world shouldn't be like monomaniacally focused on COVID. Well, but again, it's slightly different. You know, it's like when you hear people say, oh, well, heart disease is a big killer. We should, yeah, but the thing is, is like we are talking about uh, something that can kill you that you can spread to other people. Like you can, I think it's, we at least need to accept that. You don't have to agree with the points, but you at least need to accept that in the debate is that, okay, if it was Ebola right now, you know, that kind of level, people would be very scared and keeping away from yeah. each other. So we, we do have something whereby being in the same room with somebody, if I had COVID, you could get it today, you could leave and have COVID because of me. That is a slight difference than, say, heart disease. Yeah, I get you. But I mean, even the broad numbers, right? So many more die of heart disease than of COVID or like the 60 million who die every year, just globally. And the other factor as well is even if you look at things like from a Qualys point of view, quality adjusted life yeah. years, right? Every 20-year-old who suicides because they, they couldn't go to their, you know, events or have a wedding or whatever, they had 60 years left to live. Hey, listen, no, no, I agree with you. I, agree, I totally agree with you on that point. You, right? You're not Whereas like the lives you're saving, the lives that were dying of COVID, it's like people who are over 80. Yeah. Our life expectancy is like 81 or whatever, right? Yeah. I, I mean, again, I struggle with that one as well because like sometimes I think, well, my dad's 73 and I don't want him to die. Of course not. But I mean, of course, life is precious, right? Yeah, but I, know, I think yeah. there's a concept of a good innings, right? Yeah. That like someone who is 15 or 20 they should have their chance. Do you know what number you would take? If you were offered the chance, what number you would take, what age? I'll give you that now. Oh, I mean, the average life expectancy is like 81. So would you, if you were offered 81, would you take it? Or do you think you'd say, no, I think I can beat it? Well, oh, as in, personally, do yeah. I think I will? Yes. But I mean, I, like, I would... I would not... take 81 in a heartbeat. Yeah, but I mean, 81 is like, that's a good innings, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. That's like, you had, a, you had your chance. But all these other people, the rest of the world are struggling because we want to give like another four months to the 81-year-old and like destroy the lives of the 20-year-old? I think, I think it's a bit more nuanced than that. Like, I don't think people are there saying, let's just save the 80-year-olds. So I think they're thinking, let's save the teenagers, 
who died, who a very small number. And then the people with the 20, slightly bigger numbers, and the 30s, like it's a scaling number. I don't think they're saying, let's just save the 80-year-olds. I don't think people are saying that. Right, but I'm saying that most of the people who are dying are like older, right? Yeah, there's some younger people. But the often, numbers are changing those. Yeah, often, if you look at the, and here's the other thing, this is another thing the media won't talk about, is the obesity rates, right? Yep. Obesity stats are way, like, obesity is a massively bigger risk factor. Okay, here's a crazy counter example. Imagine I said, hey, you know what, Peter? We're going to do fat camps. Anyone who's obese, mandatory fat camp. You, you're only allowed to eat the carnivore diet and you can lift weights. You've got, we've got a gym there and cardio and you can eat as much meat and you can lift weights until you're slim again or until you're healthy weight. I bet you that intervention, although it's, I still in principle agree, disagree with it, I would save more lives than all the COVID stuff. Yeah, but it's a, it's again, it's it's not. I, I think it's a poor analogy in that 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 person, their weight and their food choices is an individual choice that doesn't affect others. We are talking about something where uh, individual choices can affect a lot of people and and change the economy. So if you have, you know, it, so for example, people talk about waiting lists. The waiting lists are going to be huge again in the UK because we've we've stopped doing operations, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There is a flip to that also. So here in Texas at the moment. ICU beds are filling, hospitals are filling with people coming in who've got breathing problems, got COVID. Also, operations are still being delayed because of that as well. There is a flip. If, I always think if, you, if you're going to look at one, you want to look at the other. So here's my answer then. I would say the world is doing it out of proportion, right? That I don't disagree Ultimately, with, that's my point. Be fair. Because we've had bad flu seasons in like other years <laughs> gone by. Did we like shut down the world for those? No. And so I think... The world just can't, it's not set up to operate on this idea that you might be an asymptomatic spreader, so you've got to take a test before you fly and you've got to do... Have we had like a, a global flu season which has affected almost every country in the world with millions of deaths and hospitals filling up like COVID? I don't think we've had... We I have think had, we've had hospitals overfilled though yeah, in but years but it's, gone by. It's pockets. Yeah. It's pockets. But it's not a global situation where you you can go to Brazil and hospitals are full, you go to Ecuador hospitals are full, you go to Dallas hospitals. Know. I wouldn't know the numbers to be fair. But, so, so I've seen it brought up before and I've seen this flu things. Yes, we have had it. We've had it in the UK, but they're pockets. It's not like a global yeah. issue. I wouldn't I wouldn't know the specific numbers, yeah. so I couldn't really say. But I think the broader point to me is that the world has never operated on on this idea that like just by us talking, right, that we should like put controls on our infectious disease. No. Like I'm sorry, like we have immune systems and we have to like just live with it. That's always been the way. And also, I guess bringing back to the libertarian idea is more like it should be the private property owner's choice. Well, we look, yeah. Yeah. I'm vaccinated. I don't know if you are, I assume you're not, but we've made the decision to have this conversation. Alex here has made the decision. You know, you know, even though I'm vaccinated, I can have it and carry it and pass it to you. We've made those personal choices. Yeah. I went to a florist recently with my daughter to get some flowers for her mum for her birthday. We got there, she said, you got a mask? I said, no. She said, my 87-year-old mother's working inside, can we serve you at the door? Fine. I agree with everyone making these choices. I, I totally agree with that. I, I do, though, think there are certain things that we have to consider or just, just think about. Just have, have to have the discussion. So for me, it's more like, if it was serious enough, you wouldn't need the government to tell us about it. You know? Well, I've heard, I've, again, I've heard that, I, I have heard that argument, but you know, Florida's opened up pretty much uh, Texas open up pretty much. Right now, they're both quite serious situations in terms of ICUs for me. Yeah. I think seasonality. Should... My answer would be seasonality. Like I think you're going to see a season come, and then it'll go, and then maybe, maybe in time, time will pr 
prove that. But if the whole of the US was open like that, then all ICU beds across the country were, were filled up. Maybe they are, maybe they wouldn't. I think we would, we would know. I'm not saying we should have... See, my issue is, is where's the middle ground? The You've middle got, ground is not necessarily going to be the right answer. Right? Not necessarily, but, yeah. but, but what I'm saying is, the polit- this is where I'm kind of agreeing with you, the politicization of this is the problem. Yeah. New York's gone totally one way. You have to be <laughs> mandated. Yeah, so you're mandated crazy. To, yeah, to come in if you want to go to restaurants. So basically, if you've not double jabbed, there's no point going to New York. Yeah. You come to Texas, completely open. ICUs are full in Dallas or you know, here where we are in Dallas. Like, maybe there's some middle ground where it's like, if you aren't trying to prove a political point, you would deal with things rationally in a different way. So maybe, is it, is it DeSantos here? Where? Here in Texas. DeSantis. No, Abbott. Abbott's the governor, governor of, Texas. of Texas, but DeSantis, DeSantis is Florida. Yeah, DeSantis is Florida, that's it. Yeah. DeSantis or Abbott, you know, whoever it is. Sorry to American listeners, I don't know these. Um, <laughs> maybe they would make decisions slightly differently. So maybe Abbott wouldn't be completely open. Maybe they would make just slightly different decisions. Mm. You know, maybe if, uh, you know, um, uh, de Blasio wasn't, you know, trying to make, you know, virtue signal for what New York should have, that makes slightly different decisions. I feel like the politicization is is why we're seeing those two. Worse, ex- yeah. Well, we're seeing those two extremes. Yeah, we're seeing those two extremes, and like I, I accept the reality of of the state, and therefore I want to try and like have an opinion about what they should do better, rather than just solve it from a libertarian angle, which doesn't exist. So here's how I would say it: like, think of it like even with the you know the Fabian socialists and that they didn't get their they didn't get what they wanted by um, they didn't get what they wanted by just kind of asking for a little bit. They asked all the little bit and conceded a little and just kept conceding, conceding, and just kept creeping up. And because I think because of that underlying biological tendency we mentioned earlier, they managed to get a lot of what they wanted. Governments today are massive compared to, you know, yeah. 100 years ago. Yeah. Things that are almost, you know, it's almost seen like a crazy right-wing position now, but that might be what your granddad believed. <laughs> Right? It's crazy yeah. that it's gone like that way. But governments have become so powerful and they're, they're, it's just hard to explain to people because it's like, you know, like, it's like that old saying about the, you know, there's two fish swimming in the water and they don't even know one of them is like asking the other and he's like, what's water? You know, he's like, he doesn't understand. <laughs> that, that's, that's the water we're swimming in. We're just living in this world where governments are so extremely powerful compared to before. And so, and their power of surveillance, their power of all these things is so much more advanced compared to what you know people could have dreamed about a hundred years ago. Do you have any any doubts yourself? Do you ever still question parts of like libertarianism? You think, well, I'm just not sure if I've gotten this. I right. mean, there's like some areas where you kind of like, okay, maybe like the treatment of children, right? Like that's yeah. probably one of the common ones that comes up in like social like, services to protect children. Yeah, or like let's say um, this idea that you know you should be looking after your children. Uh, but if people were to abuse children, how would you protect them? You know, like at, from an outside perspective, like yeah. they, you know, so there's little things in there. Where, that, where does age of consent come from in the libertarians? Yeah, so that's, uh, I guess, depending on the conception of that law, like it could be like the law of that citadel, if you will, or it could be like the custom, uh, or it could just be sort of more like a... What if you're not in that citadel? Yeah, so these are some of the harder yeah, questions. That's what, I'm, that's what I was yeah, saying. Yeah. These are the kind of the harder ones where, like, I don't want it to be a gotcha, by the way. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and I, and I think I openly say, like, these are potentially some of the areas where maybe there's not. It's not as clean and precise as an answer 
as just kind of like non-aggression principle, your property versus my property, you know, those are very clean, clean cut answers. So that's kind of some of the areas where I'd say libertarianism in general, kind of, that's probably one of the areas where we're not as precise as I would like to be, but I, I still think on net it is the, it's the most, yeah, it makes the most sense. So that's how yeah, I... Yeah, I mean, before we come back to the, like, the net good, the net yeah. of the whole system, you can't like just because of one thing, but it's like, how do you get to that? How do you get to that? There's like a ethical age of consent, but you know, some places in the US it's 18, the UK it's 16, right. other countries... It's or 14. even drinking age, right? Another example, yeah. similar kind of thing. So here Well, there the would US, be no drinking age in... Uh, maybe, It yeah. just wouldn't exist, would it? Well... I mean, not by a government, but maybe your insurance agency says, oh, we're not going to give you health insurance unless you make sure your child doesn't... You know, there, there could be other forms of that, right? So there could be private mechanisms, right? Like, so people think, oh, in the libertarian world, there'd be like no seatbelt rules or no driver's license or no insurance requirements. But no, remember, the road is privately owned. So that road owner is going to say, ah, oh, you're not allowed to go on my road unless you have insurance for... unless you hit some other guy or whatever, right, seatbelts, or, you know, different rules, right? So it's a similar kind of thing where over time, I think the market of people and will come up with norms and rules and customs and say, okay, age of consent is whatever, or age that you can drink is this. Yeah, I think that's why I like, I, I come back to the minicism thing because I, I, I like the, okay, in minicus, in minicus world, we can solve it and go, okay, age of consent is 18, we have that rule go fuck yourself, you can't, you know, you can't mess with that. You know, we can have agencies that protect children and we can have uh, a, 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 maybe a centralised police force. I, I, I feel a lot more comfortable right. in that world. Well, look, I mean, from my point of view, that would hey, be that less would, bad than what we have now. So I would take it, win. you know, I would take that. That would be a massive win, right? It, would be, it wouldn't be ideal, but it would be better than what we have now, so I can take that, right? For me, my approach is more just like, whatever we have now, just push in a better direction, right? So I know... We're not going to have anarcho-capitalism tomorrow, but if we can sort of push it in that direction, privatize things, make the state smaller, I'll take it. It's like Eric Voice said to me years ago, he said, if we could just 1% smaller every year, 5% yeah. smaller every year would be... Yeah, yeah, similar idea, right? Like, basically, you should be out there trying to deregulate things and trying to lower the taxes. And, and I think, in reality, the practical way this happens is more the competitive jurisdictions thing. So this idea of, you know, going overseas to get a better tax rate or, you know, to all that sort of stuff. Which is all happening right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're traveling, I'm traveling. Yeah, I mean, I'm going more nomad now and I think this is kind of the way you... you, you... And here's the thing. This is... For anyone who's, like, earning enough money, it starts to make a lot of sense to think about these things because if your income, and depending on the tax rules of your country, whatever, depending on that, it could be a huge saving. So... Uh, an interesting stat from the sovereign individual, they were saying, uh, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was saying if you could get a 10% rate of return and compounding for 40 years, it was like for every $5,000 of income or something, like it's like millions of dollars. Yep. And, you know, money's not everything in this world, but it means, let's say you did this at 20 or 30 and you, you know, compare back to when you're 60 or 70, boom, that's millions of dollars you could pass on to your family. That's millions of dollars you can put into a charity that you believe. A cause, whatever cause you believe in, you can put money into that. It really starts to weigh on your mind the cost of just like sitting in the high tax nation. And especially if you're like me and you were in Australia, a high hysteria and a high tax nation, it's the worst of both worlds. You know, like I could understand if it was like, uh, it's high tax, but I'm getting something high quality of service, high quality of living, 
But in Australia, it's not a high quality of living now. They aren't living a good life, but they're paying for it. They're paying through the nose for it. So as this option, and I think Bitcoin obviously plays in mm -hmm. here, is you know the likes of you know KD with Plan, Plan B Passports, people like Andrew Henderson, Nomad Capitalist, those kinds of people are going to show people, hey, guys, you can, you can do this. You can just go overseas and pay less tax, right? Now, it's harder for an American, I understand that. But yeah, for, fucked. Yeah, <laughs> basically you have to re renounce, right? Yeah. So, or, or you can do the Puerto Rico thing for Americans. I think they can like set up a business and get like 4% tax or something low or whatever. Mm -hmm. But for most, if you're not American or like Eritrea, I think there's like one other nation that does that. Most other people can, if they're committed enough, take the steps, take their family, get them out overseas into a low tax or zero tax jurisdiction and significantly save that money and put it into courses they believe in instead of letting the government. And here's the, here's the most screwed up thing. People in Australia are paying their jailers, right? We are funding the police who imprison us in our homes. That's, that's literally what's going on. Well, you're, you're paying for security. Well, it's for your safety, Peter. It's yeah. public health, you know? Too so. much security. All right, man, listen, love uh, talking this shit with you, uh, even though I'm, like, I'm the opposite end. This, this is why I like talking to you, because you don't give me shit and you uh, talk it through with me. You send me stuff. Well, to I read. try to answer it, you know? It's, it's like a, it's You're not a, a prick about it, basically. Yeah, it's like you can disagree with people in a, I don't know, more polite way or whatever, but sometimes you're not going to... You catch more flies with honey, even if I violently disagree with... Mm statism, I have to try to engage with people. And I think it's the same story with Bitcoin, right? It's about education. There might be someone who doesn't quite, they're coming from a fiat mindset and you have to try to put it in a way for them that they can understand, you know? And these are things that we do as educators and you know, now at Swan as well. Now yeah, tell me about Swan. What's going on there? Because that came out of the blue, surprised by it. But like then I thought about it, I thought that makes sense. Like tell people what you're doing. Yeah, sure. So I've taken on a role managing director Swan International. And so we are essentially providing education and one-on-one -on -one, uh, guidance as well as service for people. And this is generally for people who are like high net worth, business, corporate, IRA, those kinds of services. We can help onboard them and give them tips and help, right? Because someone is coming in, they're a new coiner. They might have like a little bit of coin or, no, or zero and they want to they want a bit of learning. So I think that's part of the, the value with Swan. And that was part of why I joined. I mean, they were a lead sponsor of my show for a while. Mm -hmm. And so it just kind of made sense to take on the role and actually be part of the team. And I so, think it's so impressive what Swan's done. Yeah. The, I think the rec recruitment of the team is smart as fuck. Like, uh, I went in the Swan tent in Miami. I was like, it's like all my internet friends. <laughs> uh, I think what they've done is super smart. I really like Corey. Uh, I really like the team. Uh, I, I'm really, really cool to see you part of it. It's a really, it's a really cool company who's definitely Bitcoin only. And exactly. Yeah. And like, I think that's part of it. It's like sometimes people need education to then know wh why they should be getting Bitcoin. And so I think it's like a, it's, it's something that people can easily recommend mm -hmm. to their friends or to their family to say, oh, look, go here and we know they won't lead you astray, right? They'll teach you how to hold your own keys. They'll kind of encourage you to do these things. And so it just is, I think it's just a natural fit there. So I'm, I'm part of the Swan private team and we're out here trying to help people who are looking to buy a serious amount of coin. And of course, there's you know, Swan you know, DCA auto stacking, uh, Bitcoin savings plan. I think that's also an important thing. Like I like that on the platform, there's no sell button, right? <laughs> I mean, maybe eventually that'll come. But for now... It's like, it's all about 
regular buying, regular accumulating, which is, I think, what we should. I didn't people. know there's no sell button on the platform. Now, technically, you can ask, but like on the in terms of on the website, there's not a sell button right I now. I did not know that. So it's yeah. a bottle company. Yeah, basically, and so <laughs> I I see this as I mean, as you probably do as well. It's like if we can help drive Bitcoin adoption. We're going to make the world a better place. Hold on, aren't they giving that revenue there? Because if they have a sell, they make on the sell as well as the buy. True, true. So there are, like, for private customers who ask, and I think even if you're a you know, Swan customer and you put in a customer support ticket, but basically the numbers are, like, crazy. It's, like, you know, 100 or 200 sells and, like, a million buys or something crazy yeah. like that, right? It's just... But, I mean, th I think that's also why... That's why it's good people will send, send their friends and family to us because mm -hmm. they know they're going to get taught... Uh, Regular stacking is the way, and you know, hodl, and that's that's that can be difficult for a new person, right? Because they might think, oh yeah, I'm going to play this market, I'm going to buy here and sell there. No, you just buy and hold. You know, I, the way I explain it to people is minimum holding period is four years, and really ten years if you can. Yeah, you know? that's how I teach people. I think I'm exactly the same. It's, yeah, yeah, uh, four year minimum, ideally ten. If you're young enough, maybe twenty. Yeah, and then you're going to crush it. If my kids do it now; they'll be crushing it by the time I'm. Oh yeah. They will have had an incredible opportunity to build wealth, and people don't understand like just how early we are in this, right? If we were to compare to the internet, we're probably in 1997. Yeah, you know, we haven't even hit kind of 1999 or 2000 yet. Do you know what my son said? He said, "He said, Dad, I don't need to, I don't need to uh, stack and hold Bitcoin because I just get yours when you die." Prick. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta be like, hey, like, you gotta, kid. you gotta be like, hey, uh, you gotta work for it. You know, I, I need no, to see that you're. That. I was like, you're not getting my Bitcoin. He's like, yeah, I am. <laughs> well, yeah. listen, man, love talking to you. Congratulations with Swan. Thank um, you. I'm glad you're a nomad now. I think I'm going to see you more than yeah, because I didn't see you for 18 months. Um, and appreciate everything you do, like even though I'm a status and I'm a cuck and all that stuff, sending me <laughs> stuff and helping me learn. You all, you've given me so much time and yeah, appreciate it, man. Thank, Thank you. you. Cheers. Well, I had two glasses. You only had one. Oh, uh, yeah. All right. What do you think of that? Did you enjoy that? Now, of all the conversations I've had about libertarian ideas, there have been a few that really stood out. There was a one I did with Eric Voorhees a while back when he talked about just slowly reducing the size of the government. You know, could we achieve 1% or 5% reduction, which really stood out to me. And this one with Stefan was right up there too. It was easily one of my favorite discussions around the subject. Now, I'm not instantly turned into a hardcore anarcho-capitalist, and I'm not sure I'll be applying for my spot in the Bitcoin Citadel just yet, but Stefan definitely put some things in my mind, you know, put them on the straight and narrow with a few ideas. I feel like with every one of these conversations, I learn a bit more and go a little, just a few steps closer to maybe being a libertarian. But I'm not there yet. Uh, I'm certainly not an anarcho-capitalist, and I still think there is a role for the state. It's like a reluctant acceptance. It's like, obviously, it'd be great if there was no state, but I have this like reluctance acceptance that around certain ideas that we do need some kind of centralization. Look, I know not everyone agrees with that, but I know other people do. I might get shouted out on Twitter, but there are people who email me, have similar views. So it's good to go out there and learn a bit more about this. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this one. If you've got any questions, you can hit me up. My email is hello at whatbitcoindid.com, or you can jump into my Telegram group. Outside of that, it's like it's getting boring saying this now, but if you want to support the show, just head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. Hopefully you think it deserves five stars. I mean, I'm pretty sure that Pomp is about a three-star show. So yeah, I definitely deserve five stars. So please go out and do that. Outside of that, I've got some filming to do. So I'm going to be off out on the road making this film out in El Salvador. But I will be keeping you up to date with, uh, got some shows in the bag ready for over the next week or so. Listen, have a great rest of your week and I will see you all on Friday. 